Boy, everyone, it's Caleb, and I'm so excited that you've decided to join me on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Today, I have a great guest for you. I'm talking with John Tyson, who has recently released the book, Beautiful Resistance, The Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise. And if you're not familiar with John, John is a pastor and church planner in New York City, and he is originally from Australia, but he moved to the United States over two decades ago with a passion to seek and cultivate renewal in the Western church. He is the author of several other books, including Sacred Roots, A Creative Minority, and Burden is Light. He also serves as the lead pastor of Church of the City in New York. And I'm really excited to have this conversation. This is a conversation that I've been looking forward to having for such a long time. And we cover the gamut. We cover his book. We talk about some of uh, some of his learning habits and some of the people that he's learned from as well. And it's really just a wide-ranging conversation. And uh, we're going to get to that conversation here shortly. But I do want to let you know uh, kind of the purpose, or if this is your first time listening, about why we have the Learner's Corner. And on the Learner's Corner, what we want to do is we want to create a safe place to have dangerous conversations because we truly believe here that we can learn from anyone, from everyone, from anything, and from from everything, and that we can have a dialogue with anyone, and uh, obviously everyone as well. And so I'm so excited about this conversation that we're having with John here in just a couple of minutes. But before that, I do want to let you know that the music that you're listening to is brought to you by my good friend, Sam Massey. And so if you have any audio or video or visual needs, um, or not visual, he's not a graphics person. But if you have any video needs, you can be sure to hit him up on his Instagram handle, which is at sammassey 77 And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with John Tyson. John, I'm so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Well, mate, it's a real honor and joy to be on the show. So thank you for having me. Yeah. And uh, and you've recently released uh, your book, Beautiful Resistance. And just yeah. as we're getting started, um, anytime that someone creates a work of art or a book or a movie or anything like that, I love hearing the story about what made someone want to put this thing out into the world, whether that be a moment or a series of moments. I just love understanding that. And so just as we're getting started, like what, what led you to make, what, what led you to want to write this book? Well, honestly, it was, uh, so I've been a pastor in New York City for the last 15 years, um, predominantly in Manhattan, uh, which is where we've lived that whole time. And I was just seeing cultural forces gain increasing ground in the hearts of the people that I was pastoring. It just seemed like there was a a fresh sort of intensity um, and seduction in the way of the world that was drawing people away from Jesus. And so I I wanted to to ask the question, how do we build more robust disciples who can model the way of Jesus with more um, conviction and in a more compelling nature? So that was what it was sort of birthed in. It was written, it was basically field tested. It was a series of practices and a lot of them didn't make it into the book, only the ones I felt like were most important and most uh, potent, but they were field tested for a congregation in Manhattan. And they seemed to sort of have a larger resonance. A lot of people reached out and said, hey, it's not just New York. I think it's it's a lot larger than that. And so it ended up uh, being turned into a book. So it was pastoral desire to help my people follow Jesus well. That was the genesis of it. Yeah. And 
Uh, you know, it's it's written before the time that we're in right now, but I feel like it's so applicable to the time that we're in right now. How how have you seen some of uh, some of it just play out in just the current day? Well, yeah, I am very, very grateful for that, actually. Um, yeah, I finished uh, the book in December of 2018 or so, and it's just been sitting here for about a year and a half before it came out. And it does feel like many of the things that we are wrestling with today, um, <laughs> these are practices that help us follow Jesus skillfully and well in the midst of a lot of the, the cultural complexity we see. So I think part of it is maybe being in New York, being in the city, um, we're addressing these sorts of issues all the time. And I think we're just feeling them as a whole, as a nation right now. And so part of that is the pain and joy of New York. Um, and I think America in substance is having a shared cultural moment that reflects a lot of the tensions that New York City feels regularly. So I'm, I am very grateful. I do feel, particularly as we head into this crazy uh, election where it feels like there is so much at stake in it, um, we cannot just sort of drift along and resume discipleship as normal. So I, I am glad it's connecting right now. Yeah. How, what have you learned about um, just, just handling all of that just in, in, a, in a healthy and productive way? Because I feel like it's so easy right now to get into, well, hey, you don't agree with me um, or I'm just going to cancel you. But what have you learned about, you know, holding on to that conviction and yet at the same time, having productive and healthy dialogue with other people as well. Yeah, I mean, there's probably so many tensions we fall into. You know, we all struggle with being liked and we all know that Christianity has got a pretty spotty reputation and misrepresenting Jesus. So, you know, the the pressure to be liked, the pressure to do a PR job for Jesus, um, those are tensions on one side. The other side is to basically um, just give in to the cultural forces. And, and drop our convictions. So there, there's all of these things that you're basically trying to navigate and uh, sort of get your way through. I think the way Jesus does it, he kept his eye on the Father, the Father's will, and he made his deepest desire to do to do the mission of the Father. And I think that's basically the call that we need to get people's eyes back on right now, get, get them back into a vertical vision of what is the Father's mission, how do I lean into that, and uh, not be seduced by the forces on either side that are so easy to fall into. It's so easy to take the bait, you know? Yeah. What, what do you think that might look like, like right, like right now and everything? Because as you said, it's so easy to, I mean, literally you could just pick several different things and it'd be so easy to get stuck into it. But what does what you're talking about, like, what does that look like on a day in and do it? Uh, day in and day out basis, right? Now. Well, I mean, you know, so t- take politics, for example, um, you know, there's things that the, the Democratic Party believe and champion that are that are rooted in biblical ethics. There's things that Republicans champion that, you know, have sort of Christ, a Christian framework. But to, to moralize and totalize a particular party as if it's God's party and all truth is contained within it and anybody who believes the opposite is anathema is simply not to follow Jesus well. Jesus is an equal opportunity offender, you know, and uh, I think it's, um, I thought, I think I heard Tim Keller say that, you know, Christianity in the early centuries offered a category defying distinction. Like you couldn't fit us into the category. I think we need to get back to that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, there's things that the Democrats believe that I think are 
uh, horrific and should be resisted. There's things Republicans believe, I think, are horrific and should be resisted. So how do you resist them? You resist them by embodying the way of Jesus and having a vision for the church. So I want to be clear. I'm not saying politics is irrelevant. The yeah. stakes are high. But an over-identification with a particular uh, part of politics destroys our witness because it misplaces our trust and hope for them to realize the kingdom of God rather than uh, the work of God's people through the church. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, probably most people who are listening, they have somebody in their life who has over-identified with their political yeah, sure. And yes. almost uh, there's like a complete overlap between Christianity yeah. and um, their political party for them. And it's really difficult to have dialogue with that person at times. What, what are some of the things that you've learned that have helped you just engage in, in helpful conversations with that person? Well, yeah, being belligerent and disrespectful doesn't help. You know, I, I, I always try and ask the question, why does this person believe this? Like, what about this person, what about their story or their conviction or their needs makes the thing they're over-identifying with so appealing to them? And if you understand the person's story and their heart and their longings and their brokenness and their dreams, you're going to be able to get in there and understand and empathize. And that's the place where persuasion can happen. And to me, anytime you just confront and scream at someone, all you do is harden their ego and you, you, don't, you don't create an environment for change. So to me, it's listening. So instead of just, so I'm in New York City, which is just staggeringly liberal. And um, f- so, for example, you know, Trump is not well liked in New York City and um, there can be a lot of condescension and contempt towards people who voted for Trump. And mm-hmm. instead of just saying, how could they ask the question, why did they? Like, what, what did you see in Trump that made you think, like, what frustrations were you having with the United States as a whole or our, our political system that made someone like him appealing? Like, getting underneath the longings is important because if not, we're just going to repeat these cycles where we're just shaming one another in huge power dynamics rather than actually being able to speak about things that matter and, and possibly win hearts and minds. So to me, listen behind the opinion and try and find out why. Yeah. Um. Are, are there anything else? I mean, listening is key to it. I'm just, I, and uh, there may not be anything else, but is there anything else that you've learned? Because I feel like this is just such a, it's such a relevant topic yeah, sure. for the yeah. age that we're in. The more tools that we can have, the better. Yeah, I mean, I would simply just say, like, as a, as a follower of Jesus, it's, I always ask the question, like, how do you see discipleship fitting into the positions that you hold publicly? Like, always rooting it in our vision of discipleship. There's a huge gap between American civil religion and deep biblical discipleship. And I'm always wanting to just push people graciously, like, hey, you support this policy of this candidate. How do you make sense of this based on the teachings of Jesus? And what implications do you think that has for your discipleship? And to me, that I've, I've had incredible, incredibly thoughtful and surprising conversations uh, about stuff like that. So that's it to me is like bring it back to the teachings of Jesus and discipleship and then ask. Instead of saying, what are politics implications on discipleship? We should ask the questions as a disciple of Jesus. What are the implications of the way of Jesus on our culture at large? Rooted in the right place. Mm-hmm. That's really good. For, for the person who, who may be listening and they're going, hey, you know, I'm, I consider myself a follower of Jesus or I consider myself a Christian, um, but my political party like, has nothing to do with, with my affiliation with Jesus um, or even with Christianity. What, what would you say to that person? Because they, it's, the, and it's the whole thing of you know, separation of church and state and, and 
and politics and all of that? Well, number one, I'd say you've got a fragmented worldview that's not going to work. Um, you sh- you've got to find a way to integrate it. Um, number two, you don't need to re-examine your politics. You need to re-examine your discipleship. You know, Jesus is Lord of all and cares about every part of our life and culture. Um, and and separation of church and state was never put in place to divide uh, our worldview away from faith in Jesus. It was designed to protect believers from the tyranny, tyranny of government. So it wasn't designed to produce a secular state where Christianity didn't influence society. It was designed to protect the church from tyranny. So to me, I think, um, you know, that phrase gets bantied around. We use it wrongly. And, and if we want to live our faith in such a way that the world is drawn to it, it's going to have public ramifications. We should spend time really thinking about those things. So anytime, by the way, anybody says, I'm really a follower of Jesus, but this area of my life has nothing to do with Jesus. I'm like, hey, so tell me, tell me, how do you, I would always say, how do you make sense of these passages? And I would point them to Luke 6. I would point them to the Sermon on the Mount and I would say, hey, how do you, how do you process these verses? And let them explain their understanding. Again, the goal is to persuade, not just to harden ego or confront. Mm-hmm. That's good. Uh, I absolutely love that you're writing about uh, conviction. I mean, I, I know that the book was written about several, or uh, you know, a year and a half ago. Um, but I think it's really important about you just talking about the importance of conviction in a time that that just seems countercultural at times. What what made you want to do that? Well, I mean, so the, the the book begins and ends by sort of visiting the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was in a time of tremendous compromise, and yet he believed that the joy we longed for was actually found in holding convictions. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I believe that the joy, if we view the goal of our life as being loving and faithful to God, that is the goal, being faithful to him and loving him, conviction is not about holding to an ideology or a theological or a cultural position. It's about loyalty to a person. And that word pistis, faith, definitely has a relational component to it, a covenantal component to it. So when you are faithful to someone that you love, it doesn't matter what the world says. There's this deep sense of joyful union about holding that fast. In fact, Jesus says, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, whenever people persecute, it says, leap for joy because you're now in a category of people who enjoy the intimacy of being rejected for their relational faithfulness with Jesus. So to me, I want people to see the joy that is connected um, to following Jesus and who cares what the world says. You know, it's very hard to, but when you, when you are loyal to Jesus now, then we have to make sure that we are loyal to actually the biblical Jesus and not just some bad version because you can have self-righteousness, which is a cheap substitute for biblical joy. It, what, what helps you distinguish between the two? Because so many times uh, I th- we're all guilty of this. If we make God in our own image, we make Jesus in our own image. Um, how can we tell whenever we're doing that? Well, I mean, we've got to trust the Holy Spirit, but we, it's all about it's reading the Gospels, reading God's Word again and again and again, and letting it speak to us in a fresh way. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly amazed. I mean, this morning, I'm amazed at the way Jesus confronts me. Even, you know, like I view myself as like well-read and thoughtful and nuanced and, and I'm like, gosh, Jesus is confronting me again about my heart. So if you believe the word is living and active and it can divide, it gets to the motives and intents of the heart is what it says in Hebrews 4. It gets in there. That's when you can discern. And so it's trusting the leadership of the spirit remaining in God's word and then having a spirit of humility, being willing to change your mind if you are wrong. I mean, Peter, Peter had to go through this. After he was filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, 
God still has to appear to him in a vision. Take, rise up, kill and eat. And he's like, no, Lord, you know. And then he says, oh, I now realize. So, you know, we have to stay humble and teachable and um, grow as God gives us that light. Can you just say more about, you know, you were talking about, you know, how, how Jesus, you know, cares about the motives and the intentions and the heart behind what we're doing. Why do you think that's so important? And why do you think he cares about that so much? Oh, because that's what matters most to him. I mean, it, he, he's after heart, not duty. I mean, do I want, do I, in, in a relationship, do I want somebody to be faithful to me? Yeah, of course I do. But do I want them to do it because they love me? Yes, that's way more important than just doing it out of obligation. Obligation is better than, than um, total adultery, promiscuity. But what you really want is a heart that loves. And uh, so to me, that's, that's the most important thing. God wants our hearts. Look at the way the word heart is used in the Bible and God's desire to, to win our hearts. And Christianity is a religion, not just of the mind, but of the heart. So he wants that, wants that first. Yeah. What, what did you maybe go into thinking? And then after writing this book, you know, you, you changed your mind about it or what did, what's the biggest thing that God spoke to you that was, uh, that was different than maybe what you entered the writing process with? Oh, um, I, I don't know if my mind was changed on anything, but I do know that my spirit was challenged by almost everything. You know, I mean, this is this is not a light book. It's a challenging book. Um, it's not a harsh book, but it is confrontive. And so, you know, there's a chapter, and I try and share personal stories from it. There's a chapter on idolatry and worship. Um, there's a chapter on fasting. I hate fasting, you know. But it's, I, I, it bears so much fruit in my life, but I hate it, so that's always challenging. Loving your enemies, um, honoring people, creating a space of hospitality for those who are different than you. These are all very, very... So my book is, a, is not a hard book to read, is a challenging book to do. And all the fruit comes from the application, not just from the reading. So if you take the nine practices in this book and you do them regularly, your life will look different. It will look different. And um, But a lot of us, that's not the way we view content. We sort of take it in give our opinion on it and then move on to the next thing. And I hope people sort of pause. So it's got a, it's got a, uh, an extensive study guide in the back. And I put that in there so people would have a chance to really sort of process these things. So was my mind changed? Not necessarily in this, but my spirit was very challenged. And I hope that happens to people too. I hope they read it and they feel the weight of Jesus invitation to joy through conviction. Mm. What, what's helped you learn uh, how to challenge that way without being harsh about it? Well, I mean, it's, I'm trying to model myself on Jesus, you know. I mean, Jesus is the only person I know who holds intention, the beauty of conviction and compassion. I mean, that's, that's the genius of what Jesus does. He teaches the Sermon on the Mount, and you would think he would come down from the Sermon on the Mount and live like a Pharisee, and he ends up hanging out with prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. So I think it's it's living in the tension of those things based on the life of Jesus. So people still view Jesus as the greatest man, the most sacrificial act that's ever happened is the cross. And yet he said to people, let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. Take up your cross daily. Do you want to leave me too? What Jesus was, was honest. Mm-hmm. He was honest in his love. And that's what we appreciate. Everybody knew where they stood with him. So he could say hard things but they knew that he loved them unconditionally. And to me, that's the key. You back up the challenge with a conviction and kindness. And those two things are almost irresistible to people in the world. Wow. 
can you say more about that? He was honest in his love. What does that like? What does that look like? Well, I mean, it's, it's so often we're trying to hedge our bets out of selfishness. You know, like I don't care about you. I care about what you think of me. Therefore, I'm going to say this in a way where you're not offended because I, I want to manage my image or my reputation in front of you. Jesus just says, I love you too much to not tell you the truth about this. And he just went in. So, yeah, that's it. I mean, it's like his, his willingness to, to tell us the truth in a way that we wish others would. And so we just don't live in a world. We live in a world of fake news. And, and by that, I mean spin. Everybody is positioning an angle for an agenda. And Jesus just said, I just want to tell you the truth. So the amount of times, depending on your translation, that Jesus says, verily, verily, or I tell you the truth. That's what's shaking me reading the Gospels with my daughter right now, is how often Jesus is saying, I, he's repeating, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth. And then it's something harsh as soon as he says that. And then you leave going, I want more. You know, I think that's the, the thing we haven't been able to do. And there's not actually many environments where we get to do that. Church is pretty uh, one way. There's not a lot of conversations in church. It's basically sermon concert from the front. Small groups are often opinion sharing. Our cultures are, you know, let's get two people to fight on the issue so we all sit back and watch. There's no spaces where we really sit down. Maybe it's like Dr. Phil, what he used to be, which is like saying a harsh truth. But there's not a lot of places like that. And the church definitely should be one of those. Yeah. What What does it look like to be... Um, you know, a leader or a pastor that helps helps create the place to where you can have those types of conversations? I think you, in many ways, you have to model it. You know, you have to be, I think tone is is everything. You know, people can sense the spirit out of which you speak. Um, and yeah, again, it's, it's Ephesians 4, it's speaking the truth in love. That's actually a verb. It means truthing. It's almost like a it is. It's a culture. It's an environment. It's a practice. It's not a one-off thing. So you ha- you want to create an environment where people feel safe enough to be confronted without fear of rejection. And I think you, you you model that by how you do it. You model it in how you preach. You model it in how you train your leaders. And ultimately, that creates a different kind of space that people experience in New York. And it's a great sense of relief. People come in and they're like, thank you for telling me the truth, but not rejecting me, even as you confront me. That's the beauty of the church. Yeah. Uh, One thing that I always love to ask people is, who are some of your favorite people to learn from right now? Uh, Most of the people I'm trying to learn from are dead. You know what I mean? We're living in such unprecedented times. I'm trying to go back and ask who's dealt with something like this uh, similarly. Yeah. Um. Oh, yeah, no, so I got mentored by Tim Keller when I first moved to New York, maybe 14 years ago, before he was really famous. And uh, he's deeply, he hasn't taught me what to think. He's taught me how to think. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very grateful for him and watching him navigate these these times. Like the article he just did on critical theory and biblical justice was like a case study of Tim Keller at his best. Um. Yeah, I mean, uh, J.I. Packer just died, and I've just been rereading a ton of his stuff. I'm looking, honestly, to, to older folks. And so I'm, I'm looking to folks who have had a, have a legacy of faithfulness to Jesus. They've been through every season and every storm. Gordon McDonald's someone who I read and I just feel fathered by. So, yeah, those older saints. And then I try and listen to the younger generation to hear the cry and see where things are headed, but mainly immersing myself in people who've walked with God, God faithfully for multiple decades. <laughs> 
Yeah. And uh, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to just ask it anyway. What makes you want to go back into the past and even to people who are older than you? Because it's so, um, uh, it's so, uh, I can't think of what the word, but I guess it's so popular right now to just look at the latest thing, to look at the latest, you know, hey, this book came out three months ago. I'm going to read this. What made you want to go back into the past to the people who have lived past, like through these things and everything? No, it's, um, it's the difference between wisdom and trends. Trends are what's happening and how people are responding in the moment. Wisdom is people who have successfully navigated trends and can discern the good and the bad that's connected to them. And so that to me is the appeal. How do you live a life of wisdom? And the wisest people who are, are ones who learn from other people's lives and don't have to make all the same mistakes themselves. So that to me is the appeal of it's, it's wisdom over time. And, you know, I have developed in my mind sort of like a, what I would describe as like an, an invisible council. Whenever I have a tough issue, I put it on the table and I ask, what would they say? What would they say based on what I know about them? How do I think they'd respond to that? So I'm, I basically have sort of a council of wisdom that I'm trying to draw from by spending time with, um, you know, wise authors who, who ran the race faithfully. Yeah, I, I love that. What have you been learning uh, as you've been looking to uh, to leaders and to pastors and to other people who have navigated a similar time uh, that we're in right now? Well, the main thing I realized is that is they navigated this without a lot of anxiety. We're just crippled by anxiety. And I don't know if it's because our lives are so surrounded by by comforts and because we've had so much trust in science and technology that they're going to be able to fix and solve everything. And now we're realizing it can't fix and solve everything. And uh, so these people had a deeper reliance on God rather than culture. And that's the great reminder is like, look, don't keep your eye trying to figure out which government is doing what at what stage or how effective which kind of mask is or whatever. Keep your eyes on God. You know, just lag behind the pressure of the moment till wisdom and consensus really emerges and keep your eyes on God until then. And to me, that has been such a life-giving practice in the midst of this. I mean, trying to pastor a church, uh, so my whole family got COVID too. So we all had COVID. And then we're in the middle of New York City. Our church is right in the epicenter of New York, right, which was the global headquarters of the pandemic. And to be able to have a deep well of peace and assurance and understanding because I wasn't just driven to and fro by the latest poll or the latest pundit or the latest politician was very, very life-giving. So I feel like I'm coming out of this. I'm tired. I've been through a lot, um, but I'm coming out with a full heart rather than an anxious heart. And for that, I'm very grateful. And a lot of that is from wisdom from, from believers in other times. Yeah. Are, are there any spiritual disciplines or practices that have helped you, you know, get to that place of having a full heart? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, regardless of whether enjoy your sorrow, it's it's maintaining intimacy with with Jesus. I mean, that's the promise of John fifteen. It's abiding. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you want. It's having the scriptures. It's being in tight community. It's uh, having joy by seeing Jesus' love embodied in close relationships. It's remaining in His love. Jesus never says remain in how you feel about me. It's always remain in how He feels about us. Remain in my love. So accessing daily the affection of God. And uh, so, yeah, every day I tend to the well uh, that I draw from. And the well after all of these years has gone deep. And I think I had tried to, again, living in New York, has been a great gift to me. It's been very challenging in, in a lot of ways. One of the great gifts is, is like, you can't wing it. 
It's too hard. So I've developed the disciplines over time of just morning intimacy with God. And some people call it a quiet time. I call it devotions because that's it's like I'm devoting my heart to God. I'm enjoying His devotion and affection towards me. And um, so I found regardless of the circumstances, there's been that that secret place of hope and joy to draw from. So I want to go back to what you mentioned of how Tim Keller taught you how to think. What did he do to help teach you how to think? Well, you know what he did? I mean, he basically took me through a thousand page single spaced PDFs worth of content over a year (laughs) in the nine main categories of pastoring in an urban context. And then we spent a month on them and then we spent an afternoon just doing Q and a with him. And we just bring our hardest practical theological questions and we just process them together and talk through them. So, I mean, it was such a gift. I think uh, I, I was maybe a part of the first or second um, cohort that he ever did, six, go- six of us. And um, it was one of the greatest gifts of my life, mate. I mean, I, again, it's, I'm not trying to be Tim Keller. I'm so different. I have a different theology. You know, he's a, a very strong Calvinist, though he doesn't preach like it. Um, he's a cessationist. I'm a charismatic. You know, there, there's a lot of differences between us. But again, teaching you how to approach things is the great gift he gave. Too many people just try and be an echo, you know, um, rather than actually understanding where his voice came from and, ha- and how to find your own voice. That's the greatest gift he gave me. Here's how to be you. Here's, here's principles of the gospel that the Spirit will use to empower you for your call. And, mate, I'm so thankful for that. Yeah, that that's so powerful. Like, what what did that look like? What did that journey look like of you learning um, learning your own voice and how God uniquely wired you? Well, one of the most important things is you've got to stop listening to other preachers. You know, I had to stop listening to Tim Keller. Crazily enough, I'd never listened to Keller before I moved to New York. I I, I was still sort of under the cross and switchblade sort of mentality. So his stuff was like a, a life altering. Um, awakening really um but i realized you know what it's too easy to just to skimp on sermon prep buy a keller talk see what he did and just use it i I had the realization early on if i just do this i'll never figure out who i am so i spent a lot of time with myself asking who am i what's my story what are the unique things god's put in me how do i share these how do i personalize these principles and again it took a lot longer um you know, what are the distinctives God's given me? And, and then um, just working on the craft of communicating uh, that yourself. And I, I think, honestly, the problem with most people is they're lazy. Like I, I don't say that in a judgmental way. There's so much content out there people are listening to. It's so easy to listen to four or five of the top preachers and just take their notes and use it yourself. But I try and have a sense of revelation in the text. Like, oh my gosh, I learned that myself. I studied that and I learned that. And when you do that, it preaches differently than let me quote what somebody else learned. There's a kind of a a life to it, an energy and authenticity. And um, so I, I know it sounds crazy. I don't listen to any other preachers. I probably should at this point, I should work them back in so I could get better. Um, I have a preaching coach who who I just got who's helping me work on the craft of sermon delivery. Mm-hmm. But finding your voice is the hard work of sitting before God in your own story and the text of the context of where you are and putting those pieces together. And if you do it, it'll be worth it. It'll have a different kind of authority. You will be a voice and not an echo. What are you learning from your preaching coach? 
Oh, you know, I mean, basically I'm learning about the technicalities of becoming a better communicator. Mm-hmm. So he's like, your content's strong. And the discipline of preaching to very well-educated secular people in Manhattan for 15 years has has developed me intellectually uh, to a pretty robust level. But he's like, your communication's off. You know, like your sermons are too long. They're not, there's not enough stories. There's not enough well-crafted stories. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know, basically pace, pitch, pause. You know, slow it down. Have better eye contact. A lot of those technical things that I've gotten away with, you know. And, and I'll say this. When you're in a world where, you know, our podcast, there's 10 times more people listening to our podcast than attend our church. And the, the sort of the, the echo of media at the time of history we live in demands that you get a little better. Whereas before, when I'm giving it live in a room, you can get away with all the idiosyncrasies and people are like, that's our pastor, we love him and know him. Um, but if you want to go beyond that, it requires a little bit of skill and that's what he's helping me sort of work on right now. So, Yeah. Um, what have you learned about uh, communicating to people who are highly educated and logical? Well, I've learned two things. I mean, you've got to get to the heart through the mind. You have to show that you have credibility and then from that place, you have to be able to say, I can inhabit, inhabit and understand your world and then here's a plausibility structure to another world and another story. And um, so to get in their mind, I mean, this is Paul in Acts 17. Oh, yeah. He understand, understands, gets it, and then basically does a surprise ending. Appreciate your religion, but, you know, God, he's not in the temples you've built, sorry. You know, he's not, he's, he's not served by priests in human hands. Amazing. So, yeah, I mean, you've got to have like a level of thoughtfulness in order to gain a hearing. Um, but then the, the number one thing I've learned about very well-educated people is this, is that underneath the brain, their human hearts dealing with the same problems as a farmer in Wisconsin. Seriously, there's only so many core human universal longings. They may be manifested with more sophistication and articulation, but they're the same underneath. They want to know, am I attractive to my spouse still? Are they still interested? Do my kids want to spend time with me? Am I a good parent? They want to know, is my job meaningful or is this all just hype? Is this going to be another 40 years of drudgery? They want to know in their spare time, is there beauty and wonder and meaning? Is there any sort of, you know, enchantment to the monotony of work? And so it's the same underneath, man. takes a little more work to get there, but appealing to those longings is the key to preaching, period. In fact, it was Andy Crouch. I was driving him somewhere. He was speaking in an event, and I had the privilege of being his driver. And I think he had just worked at, but maybe it was Cornell or Harvard. It was one of the Ivy League schools. And I said to him, what's it like being around all those geniuses, man? I mean, is that an intimidating environment? And he said to me, John, here's what I've learned. People are normally only geniuses in one true area. A PhD is an expert in in almost nothing. And um, he said, but underneath it all, they just have universal longings and just treat them as people, speak to their hearts. And that was very, very freeing for me. So I found that to be true. Uh, I want to go back to something else that you had mentioned uh, about Tim Keller as well. You talked about how uh, even though you you uh, differ in in some aspects, you still chose to learn from him. And we live in a society right now that is just like, hey, you're different than me. I'm not, I'm not going to learn from you or I'm going to cancel you. What made you want to learn from him and even like uh, and reach out to him 
even though he was different than you in some of your beliefs and everything. Oh, oh mate, I mean, I was, I mean, I was so humbled at the time. I mean, I literally was. I came to New York thinking I could reach the city and realize, I mean, I came from a ton of like youth pastor college ministry success. So the thing I led grew sort of from maybe 200 ish to 1400 in two years, you know, all the hype. And I came to New York and I was like, yeah, we're just going to do that in New York. And then it was like, none of this works. <laughs> it was, I was in a time of like genuine repentance about my own independence, genuine humility and hunger for God. And I just was like, you know, gosh, back then he'd been there 15 years, maybe a little longer. And I was like, you've been here a long time. He was there and he'd been there 16 years. So I was like, look, man, you've been here a lot longer than me. Help help and they actually said the reason i got into the program is they said because you're in a state of disorientation and and you're humbled and so we like they said if, if you think you know all the answers by the way most people who come to new york to start churches think they've got it figured out otherwise you'd never come so he said but you're in this rare state that we hope to see which is like you've been humbled by the city so now you're teachable so that's what it was it was uh it was god working in my heart to re- uh, to do uh, deep work of repentance, and it was the city beating the stuffing out of me. Yeah. Uh, one final question I want to ask you is if you could pass on three lessons that you've learned in life to everybody in the world, what would they be? Uh, number, number one, abiding in Jesus is literally the secret to all of life. It's where the joy is. It's where the fruit is. It's where the love is. It's where community is. It's where his word is abiding is the secret. If you get good at one thing in your life, get good at abiding in Jesus' love. That's it. It's almost its own category. Number two, um, time is the greatest commodity, how we use our time. And we live in a time of such distraction where we're shallow people. We know a tiny little bit about everything and nothing profoundly or well about anything because we don't have time. Use your time wisely. And the third thing I would say is it's it's about people. Life is about relationships. And so a successful life, a compelling life is a life of deep love. So love people well, be faithful, be loyal, stick with it, celebrate well, do relationships well. Yeah. Well, John, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, Beautiful Resistance, and continue to learn from you as well. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Oh, our church's website's easy. It's church.nyc. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at J-O-N-T-Y-S-O-N, John Tyson. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And just thanks thanks for all the work that you're doing as well, not just in New York, but literally thanks to technology and social media. Like literally, you're able to impact so many people. And just thank you for thank you for doing the hard work of, you know, just abiding in Jesus and just sharing what you're learning. Oh, no worries, mate. What a joy. And again, thanks for having me on the show. Well, John, thanks again so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you just for um, for investing in us and helping us continue to grow, not only uh, as humans, but as Jesus followers as well. Uh, and if you don't happen to be a Jesus follower, I, I'm so excited that you've decided to listen to this podcast as well. Um, and if you have anything, if anyone has anything that you would love for us to talk about more on the podcast, or if you have someone that you think would be a great guest on here, I would love for you to reach out to me. My Instagram handle is at Caleb J. Mason, and I would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Learner's Corner podcast. We truly want to create a 
safe place to have dangerous conversations, to have a conversation literally with anyone and everyone, because we can we believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, that we can learn from anything and from everything. And so thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing. <laughs>